Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz Podcast. Well, as human beings, we love a good come-from-behind story, don't we? We love a good come-from-behind story. You may remember, you probably don't, you may remember that in, I think it was early June, maybe it was late May, I was lamenting the agony it is to be a Seattle Mariners baseball fan. You may remember that I said they get you excited, they make all these great off-season moves, and they even bring up a rookie that looks like he's going to be really promising, and then they dash your hopes by losing four in a row to the Angels in Seattle. And, uh, and then they went at the end of, of June to Los Angeles and beat the Angels up, both in the games and then in the fight. <laughs> uh, and then they started winning, and then on, on Friday, just a couple of days ago, they clinched their first playoff spot in 21 years. Yes! I was at win number 116 21 years ago this week, and that was the high point of Mariners fandom for, well, my lifetime. <laughs> and so we're hopeful, we're hopeful that there's, there's more good uh, to come for being a Mariners baseball fan, because this is a great come-from-behind story. This is, this is the type of story we like. I, I think that's why there have been, I think there are now about 40 different Rocky movies have been made, because every Rocky movie follows the same, the same pattern. Sylvester Stallone is beaten to the point that everybody in the arena says, can we just please stop now? And then all of a sudden, he finds new strength, and he ends up beating whoever his opponent is. And, uh, and we just can't help. Like if, if those movies don't stir your heart, you need to see your cardiologist. You might not have a heart. Uh, the, the Rocky, we are just wired to love a good come-from-behind story. During these first few weeks of preaching from the book of Romans, I feel like I'm going to our defeat over and over and over again. I feel like I haven't stopped talking about sin and, and the power of sin over humanity for, like, forever now. And it's, uh, it's been a long, a long go as we've been talking as Paul is introducing himself, he's written a letter to a church he's never been to, and so he wants to introduce himself by presenting his theology. He goes to the beginning of his theology. The beginning of his theology is the way that humanity has separated itself from God, and, and he, he really narrows down and focuses on the idea of sin. The beginning is this, this state of humanity before the gospel puts us right with God. And Paul has a lot to say about what is wrong, what is wrong with humanity before God comes in and finds us. He's, he's gone through the way that God has created the world to reveal himself. God has, has been revealed through creation, and people looked at what God created in, in, in the world, and they twisted it, 
And they, they took the law of love that God put on our hearts and, and God sent Jesus to clarify and we have twisted love and we have made something that, that God never intended and, and we have twisted the right order of the world and made it unrecognizable from what God's intention was. And then Paul talks in chapter 2 about how God gave the Old Testament law to the nation of Israel and, and the Jews were unable to live according to the law themselves, but then... Uh, they not only did they violate the law, they became callous and, and they stopped sensing how they were violating the law in their own hearts and they applied the law strictly to anyone who was outside of their ranks and they condemned anyone who didn't live up to the high standard of the law. And so even, even the people who had the law, even people who, who approached the law with a goodwill in their hearts and wanting to, to please God, they, they were unable to do so, and they were unable to, to change their own lives to live according to the law. And then Paul, Paul talks about how, how, despite whatever it is in humanity that has caused us to block our ears and close our eyes to God's goodness uh, that he has, he has revealed in the world, there is something within us that still knows what is good and what is right. And God has, has implanted in our hearts so that when we do wrong, we are convicted by our own hearts. And when we do right, we sense in our own hearts that we have done right. And so without the law, people's hearts, people's hearts are directed to, to do what is good according to God. But, but even without the law, people, and even without the law, people are convicted by, by their own sin. And so he's been through all of that. He's been through all of that. And today we come to a passage that acts as sort of a summary, maybe kind of a final word on all that is wrong. Uh, we, we come to, to Paul getting ready to turn the page, getting ready to turn the page, not turning the page just yet, to talk about what God has done about the sin that has become pervasive in, in our world. And so he ends all of his talk about sin by, by taking it, a few foundational passages from the Old Testament, and, and he writes a big poem. And, and so today we're looking to a passage that doesn't look like there's a lot of hope in it. It looks like we're getting beat up pretty badly. And we'll see if maybe we can find a little bit of hope in it with God's help. So we're going to turn to Romans 3 and start in verse 9, and we'll go through verse 20. I'll, I'll read it for you. It'll be on the screen. Um, Romans 9, uh, no, Romans 3, verse 9, sorry. Well then, should we, conclu should we conclude that the Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away, all have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. 
And then in verse 9, Paul takes over after quoting. He says, obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose was to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So Paul goes back to, in verse 9, to the question that he had been wrestling with before he got here. And, And the question that he's wrestling with is, does simply having the law help people who have the law? Is, is knowing the law enough to make somebody right with God? And, and his answer is an emphatic no. No, no. Knowing the law doesn't make a person a rule follower, right? Any more than having a driver's license makes you a race car driver, right? You, you, are, not, you are not Einstein just because you can say E equals MC squared. Uh, we... we are not perfect just because we know the law. We don't obey the law just because we know the law. And, and so access to God's law was never the issue for, for us humans. Paul says in verse 9, all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, have, have violated uh, the law and are under the power of sin. And so returning briefly to, to the way I interpreted the passage in, in chapter 2 and chapter three, the beginning of chapter 3 last week, I noticed that Paul talks about the Jews in many of the ways that can be used to talk about Christians today. The, the Jews were the, the religious elites, the people that knew and understand what God wanted, and they, they liked to remind people that they were right in front of God's eyes. And, and so the Jews understood God's revelation from a perspective that only came because God had revealed it to them, and so shouldn't that make them superior to everyone? Um, We believers would never act superior to anyone because we think we know it all because God's revealed it to all of us, but, and then the Jews were sure that they belonged to God's people, and the evidence that they had was was circumcision, and, and they were, because they were circumcised, they were acceptable by God, and, and as Christians, like, we would never say just because we're baptized, just because we're baptized means that we're okay in God's sight. We would never believe that, um, I don't think. And then the, the Jews in practice, they, they expected that they would be recipients of God's grace because God's grace is, is abundant towards his people, right? And then they expected that anybody that was outside of the walls of, of the nation of Israel would be would be condemned and judged harshly and not experience God's grace. And, and really, as Christians, we really need to guard our hearts against fitting that mold. We, we need to guard our attitudes toward, toward those outside because we can easily slip into the same sort of legalistic self-satisfaction that Paul writes about the Jews experiencing in, in first century Roman Empire. And when Paul talks about the Gentiles in this passage then, he uses an interesting word. He doesn't use the same word that he uses regularly for the Gentiles. When, if you're looking at your Greek text, your Greek New Testament, you'll notice it's a different word. Uh, the word is actually Greeks. Um, it's, it's Hellenists. It's, it's people who are part of the culture. Uh, the, the Greeks the, the Greeks were the, the, the empire before the Romans, 
But their culture, the Greek culture, was the dominant culture. So the, the Greeks colonized all of the world with their culture. The Romans did it with their government. Uh, and, and the Greek culture continued to be the predominant culture of the Roman Empire. And so when Paul talks about the Greeks, he's talking about the people who knew all of the latest hits on the radio. He's talking about all of the people who knew the, the, the best movies that were out uh, and, and most current. Um, maybe that, <laughs> I'm culturized, I'm, I'm enculturating here too much. He, he, he talked about the people who knew what temple to go to to serve what God for what purpose. Uh, he, he talked about the people who fully understood the culture that they lived in and imbibed deeply from it. Um, and, and so, Paul, Paul is saying that both the Jews, the, both the holy huddle, and those who are fully drinking from the cultural well, the, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, uh, are under the power of sin, he says in verse 9. They're under the power of sin. Sin had more control of their lives than they had of their own lives. And, and Paul sort of personifies sin. He says sin has become their taskmaster. Sin has become the one who has enslaved them. They no longer have control. Sin is in control. And, and all of the ways that he has talked about of, of God's goodness being twisted, all the ways that the law of love has been corrupted, all of the ways that humanity has given love a bad name have, have been given power over humanity. And we, we as humans live under, under the, the oppression of sin that dominates us. And then to make his point, to make his point, he writes a poem. He does, have you ever seen found poetry? Um, like found poetry is the idea of like finding poetic things in, in culture and, and like writing a poem from it. So, you know, like uh, delicate wash, warm, hang dry, uh, refrigerate after opening, best if used by September 21, 1935. That would be an example of a found poem in your home. Paul, Paul makes a found poem out of, of scripture. It, it kind of, I've read some found poetry and I don't get it. Um, it's, it's above me. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Paul, Paul takes uh, a couple of psalms and a couple of, uh, or one passage from the book of Isaiah, and, and he compiles them together and he makes an ode to the sinful fallen state of humanity. He, he writes uh, how, how sin has been woven into every area of human existence. And so he starts by showing how, how sinfulness has infected the character of, of people. And in verses 10, 11, and 12, he's quoting from, from Psalm 14, which, by the way, is exactly the same as Psalm 53. Um, and just an aside, just a 
because there haven't been enough asides yet, uh, in parentheses yet. In, in, uh, when we read the Paul quoting the Old Testament, he is quoting from the Greek Old Testament. And so when you go, you're more than welcome to flipping your Bible to, to Psalm 14. The wording is going to be a little different because Paul is quoting from, from an original source that is Greek, and he's just importing that Greek directly. And then when, when translators of the Bible today uh, translate that, they translate the Greek into, into English and, and try to be like true to the Greek we won't go any deeper down that rabbit hole. And then in the Old Testament, when we read the Psalms, those Psalms are from, the, from a Hebrew manuscript. They're from, from what we hope is older than the Greek manuscript. Like, it would have been the source material, or even we, we have, like, really good manuscripts now of the Old Testament that are probably older than the Greek uh, version was translated from, from Hebrew to Greek. And so we have like these really ancient, good manuscripts today of the Old Testament in Hebrew that we use for, for getting the text of our Old Testament. And then uh, Paul was using the Greek, Greek text. So, sorry, I won't, I'll, <laughs> I could go on and on. Um, so so Paul, Paul begins by quoting from, from Psalm 14, and, and he shows the, how sin has infiltrated every aspect of human character. He says, no one is righteous in verse 10. He says, no one is wise in verse 11. He, no one is seeking God. No one is, is looking for God. And then everyone has turned away from God and become utterly useless. And no one does good. He's not painting a very hopeful picture of humanity here as he, as he finds poetry from the Old Testament. Not only has it infected our character, but sin has infected our speech. And everything about our words is sinful. He says in, in verse 13, quoting from Psalm uh, 5-9, he says, their talk is foul. He says, their throats stink like an open grave. He says, their tongues are filled with lies. Their lips drip with snake venom. And then in verse 14 from, from Psalm 10, 7, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. When, when Paul talks about our speech, I can't help but think about the words of Jesus, who, who talked about how from our mouths, we reveal the content of our heart. Jesus said, for whatever, uh, whatever is in your heart determines what you say in Matthew 12. He says, Jesus says in Matthew 15, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Jesus thought that our words, our speech, reflected our hearts. And then Paul goes on in verse 15, he starts talking about our conduct. The way we act reveals our sinfulness as well. He says people rush to commit murder in, in verse 15, that destruction and misery follow them in verse, uh, sorry, verse 15, they rush to commit murder, destruction and misery follow them in verse 16. 
they don't know where to find peace in verse 17. All of that is from Isaiah chapter 59. And then he gets to the root of it all in in verse 18. He quotes from Psalm 32. He says, they have no fear of God. No fear of God. Uh, That just makes me consider the the beginning of the psalm, psalm or proverbs 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 one seven the the beginning uh, the fear of the lord is the beginning of all wisdom um, they they have no fear of god he's already talked about how they aren't wise they have no fear of god and so after this little ode to the sinfulness of humanity paul paul clarifies that by quoting the Old Testament law, he wasn't only applying it to the Jews who had the Old Testament law. He goes on and he says that everyone is guilty. Every, we're not just focusing on the Jews because we're talking about the Old Testament here. We're, everyone is guilty. And, and everyone in the entire world, it applies <laughs> that no one is righteous. And then in, in verse 20, he says the law really really just serves the purpose of pointing out how sinful we are. Nobody can be justified by the law. Being aware of our sin doesn't make us right in God's sight. We, we are all guilty. And that's uh, the word of the Lord. Um, do, do you start to feel like you're, you're a baseball team that just lost a series at home that you should have won? You got beat every game? Are you starting to feel like you're on the mat for the third time in the match and, and you don't know if you can get up again? Uh, I think we, we all know the struggle of, of fighting that same sin again and again, of fighting that same temptation over and over, of dealing with that, that same problem for the 10th time this week and the 100th time this month. And, and, uh, and in the church, we, we have a, a doctrine that, that speaks to this a little bit. We, we have this doctrine that's called total depravity. We say, we say humanity is completely born in sin and inclined to sin. Uh, total depravity says that while we may know what God desires for us, we are more inclined to do what God does not desire um, that we are, we are more inclined to a selfish sort of love that looks out for ourselves than we are to a love that reflects the love of Jesus, a selfless love to, to our world. That we are more inclined to worship ourselves and worship the things that bring us comfort than we are inclined to worship God. And not only are we inclined away from doing what pleases God, Total depravity says that we are utterly helpless when it comes to seeking God to remedy this inclination of our hearts. That as human beings, we have nothing good in us that will ever point us toward God. We are stuck and lost in our sins. And uh, again, the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Uh, This, you know, this is the the doctrine of, of depravity is is not an uplifting doctrine. It reminds us of the brokenness of, of our world. It reminds us of, of how far we are from, from hitting the mark that God would have us hit. And people, 
people are like might be thinking about how is this just like how how is it that a, a good god could could make us this way and then that we're just lost by our inclination alone uh like is it is it just our inclination that takes us straight to hell then and what we say is is the inclination isn't isn't what makes us guilty before God, it's that we act on the inclination. That every human person who has ever existed, except for Jesus, has known what is right and chosen to not do what is right. Every human person, you know, there, there is grace for children. And there's grace for those who never develop to the point of being able to make the choice. But the, the, every human person who is able to make a choice <clears throat> chooses to do what they know is not right. And, and so that's kind of what Paul is saying in his ode to sin here. There is not one who is righteous. No, not one. And, and really, this, this paints like a bleak picture of humanity. And, and the Apostle Paul, so frustratingly, is completely unapologetic in painting it. He never takes his foot off the gas in these first few chapters. He, he, is, he is driving home the point as hard as he can. And when we're honest, we, we recognize that we live in a world that suffers the consequences of this brokenness. Being honest, we all recognize this brokenness in ourselves. We have all lived through it. We have all fought against this inclination. We have all fallen to the same temptation for the nth time. And there, at times it's tempting to t- turn a blind eye to that. Uh, at times it's tempting to, and, and one of the least helpful things that we can do as we think about the depravity of humanity is, is to, to ignore it. To look at our world that's on fire with conflict and sin and injustice and hate, where seemingly everyone is pursuing that which is contrary to the will of God, and say, it's no big deal. It's, it's not that. It's not that bad. It's, it's no biggie. We're fine. I'm fine. We're fine. It's fine. It's all fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Or the other thing that we can do to ourselves is, is just look inside and say, yeah, there are some problems. There are some things that aren't right, but it's fine. It's no big deal. I'm fine. It's okay. I'm all right. Um, it's just the way God made me. The thing is that God also made us to live beyond Romans 3, 9 through 20. Uh, God, God has, uh, has called us beyond this. The purpose of this sermon is, is to consider this passage in its context. And, and so, like, maybe we should remember uh, that this thing that preachers do where they take 11 verses, 12 verses from the Bible and, and from a letter that Paul wrote, and they talk about it for a half an hour, it's weird. 
It's, it's not what Paul intended when he wrote this letter. He didn't expect that anybody would say, uh, let's take the ode to sin and uh, let's figure out a way to talk about that for 45 minutes. Paul, Paul didn't expect that the church would do this. Paul expected that the letter would be read in its entirety in front of the congregation. And, and so he, he anticipated that we would continue reading that he would understand that by the time we're here, the picture is looking pretty bleak, but we're not even a quarter of the way through the letter. And, and he would anticipate that, like, this doctrine section, there, there's eight chapters of hard doctrine in, in Romans, maybe 11 if you want to go through chapter 11 of hard We're not even a quarter of the way, or not even half the way through the hard doctrine, the, the stuff that talks about the order of salvation and, and the way that God has, has called us into his plan for us. And, and so, I mean, it takes a while to paint a bleak enough picture, an accurate picture of, of the state of humanity before God begins to act. If you think about the Ark of the Old Testament, it takes a while before God's people start to get it. At the end of the fifth book in the Old Testament, and those are long books in those first five books, the end of the fifth book, God's people are still just a ragtag group of escaped slaves living in the desert. And then in the sixth and the seventh book, they start trying to take the land that God promised to them, but they do it in fits and starts, and they continue to sin and, and don't build an identity around God. And then it takes till, till the books of first and second Samuel, which if you're reading just the history, that's like over halfway through the history of the Old Testament. It takes until then that they have a king that, I, that, that gives them an identity as God's people. God is not afraid of it taking a while for people to get it. God is not afraid of the process in our lives. Even if it takes years and years, God is not afraid of working on you for years and years. And so, Romans echoes the struggle of, of God's people in the Old Testament as they, as they walked into the promised land. Paul has to hammer home this idea that we're a long way off by our inclination. And so, the first word, as Paul lays out his theology, is the sinfulness of humanity. But it is certainly not the final word. Because we're going to go on and we're going to read in, in the book of Romans how while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're going to go on and, and see while we were far off, God called out to us. While we were helpless to draw near and lost in our sins, God continued to pursue us. That God has never stopped calling us. And that there is nothing that we can do that will separate us for the, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That there is no sinner who is so far off that God is not still calling out to them. And while the depravity of humankind is a fundamental doctrine of the church, it can never be thought of without also talking about God's grace. And so when we, when we talk about the, the grace that reaches out to us when we're furthest off, we, we talk about this type of grace we call prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is a word that we don't use. We don't talk about anything that prevenes very often. 
prevenient makes sense when you think about the word convenient. They're related words. Convenient. A convenience store has all of my favorite sugary snacks and sodas in it. And it's very convenient because it's open 24 hours a day, and they're all over the place. They are very convenient. They are there when you need them. When something is prevenient, it is there before you know you need it. God's prevenient grace reaches out to us before we are even aware that we need it. God wants relationship with people so badly that God has reached out to every person in the world, whether they realize it or not, whether they hear it or not, whether they recognize it as God or not, God has reached out to every human being and said, I love you and I want you. God has put his invisible qualities on display in creation, as Paul talks about in Romans 1. God has shown how he loves us by giving us this earth to enjoy. He is calling us by whispering his love to our hearts. And so, we can mourn. (laughs) It might be an appropriate response to mourn the sinfulness that we find within our own hearts. Uh, As it pulls us away from God's goodness. But ultimately, we are... We are people who recognize that our walking away from God does not end the story. The the ultimate victory that, that can be ours is because God has called out to us. This is the ultimate come from behind story. Jesus chases us down when we're trying to run. Jesus drags us away from the power of sin that has dominated us. He gives us the grace to get it right. 